Mighty God, you are all glorious. You continually make your wonders known to us. Help us this day to draw close to you, to learn and to grow, to embrace your truth in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm subbing in for fatherly a little bit last minute, and we seem to have some some different reports on where exactly we left off last week. I wasn't in here last week, oops. Um, what, what I'm hearing from you all is we've not covered the second commandment yet. Is that right? Okay, all right. Um, well, let's do that maybe rather quickly and then see if we can get on to the third as well. So we're picking up on page 95. This is question 274. What is the second commandment? The second commandment is, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. What does the second commandment mean? God's people are neither to worship man-made images of God or of other gods, nor to make such images for the purpose of worshiping them. I want to ask a question that's not in the book for your reflection. Why the second commandment separate from the first commandment? Because we already have, you shall have no other gods before me, right? No other gods, I'm the only one. And then this addition, don't make any graven images to worship them. There seems to be some overlap. Maybe there's a distinction as well, but what, what do you think? Why, why both of these statements? Why, why do we need to crystallize out this statement about images? Ah, because humans are inclined to make images and worship them. <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh, biblical history suggests that's true. Other thoughts? What does this capture that the first one doesn't, if anything? Okay, say more. Okay, good. Yeah, so there, there's a kind of creature-creator distinction getting emphasized and underscored here that 
And, and this is, I think this is something really important that's happening even in the Genesis 1 creation account, that it has a kind of polemical orientation in relation to other kind of origin myths in the ancient Middle East. Um, the Genesis 1 very clearly has its sights set on, hey, you worship the sun, guess what? God made the sun. You, you worship trees, guess who made the trees? Hey, it's the same God. Right, the ocean, we have a lot of readings in the uh, Eucharist readings this morning about the ocean, the sea, and how uncontrollable it is. But this God created the sea, right? We don't worship a God of the sea, we worship God who made all these things, who, who's distinct from the created order, right? The, this is the transcendence of God, the God's otherness. Uh, that idolatry blurs that we we think oh oh this this created thing somehow is worthy of worship or somehow can be identified with equated to God or a God. Um, and there's there's something really important, I, but I think also really distinctive, perhaps somewhat unique about really parsing this out and saying, no. There's the creator, there's everything else. Don't get them mixed up, <laughs> right? Um, it occurs to me also, though, in question 275 here, it says, God's people are neither to worship man-made images of God or of other gods, right? So. It, Arguably, you see something like this with the golden calf incident in Exodus, where it's, are they making a different God or are they purporting to make an image who, that somehow represents the God of Israel? It's, it's not quite clear, but I, I think you could argue for the second, right? The, you have this symbol that kind of represents God. and like, oh, great, so we'll worship this. Nope, stop, right? What, what does Aaron say when he makes the, the calf? Oh, Israel, here are your gods that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Like, no. That's not him. <laughs> and, and Moses is going to come down and, in great fury and make that point pretty emphatically, if you remember the story. Um, so not only is there the creator-creature distinction getting clarified here, um, don't worship creatures instead of the creator, but also don't worship creatures as the creator. Right, not, not to let the creature receive worship on God's behalf in some way. And this gets interesting, I, I think this will turn up a bit a few questions later, but um, a couple of the early fathers, I think Augustine talks about this. They say that heresy is a kind of false image making. Right? Because you're creating a distorted image of God. It might, be, it might not be a visible portrait of God or image or carving or whatnot. Um, but that this disordered, distorted, partial way of thinking about God, a, a kind of 
false image of God that we create in our own minds is also a violation of the second commandment. You see that? Um, I, think, I think that's right. That when we, we misimagine or misenvision God, it might not be a formal heresy, right? But, but we have the, this kind of falsified, too limited, too constrained image of God in our own minds. That there's a sort of idol-making going on. Um, I, I think it was, it was John Calvin who said, the human heart is an idol factory. <laughs> He's also not wrong. <laughs> Um, even when you're not pulling out the chisel, right? But there's this crafting of idols that we so readily go to, as this is Kimberly's point, right? Um, question 276. How did Israel break the first two commandments? Israel neglected God's law worshiped the gods of the nations around them, and brought images of these gods, idols, into God's temple, thus corrupting his worship. Yeah, that went badly. <laughs> so you, you have this continual pull in, in the daily office lectionary. We've just started the book of Judges. The reading this morning at morning prayer was Judges 3. And it's basically this kind of summary account of after Joshua and Eliezer, Phineas, the, the kind of generation who had seen God bring them into the land dies off, they all turn and start going after idols. And God says, I'm going to leave some of these people in the name, some of these other nations in the land to test you to see if you'll stay true to me or not. Uh, spoiler alert, they mostly don't. this like continual turning after the gods of the nations. What is it about the gods of the nations that's so compelling? That like over and over again, they keep saying, we have this God who brought us out of Egypt, who brought us into the promised land. Ah, uh, Baal seems great this week. Right? Let, let's, let's make an Asherah pole. I mean, is this idolatry as peer pressure? We, we want to be like the nations around us? We, we're tired of being the weird ones? That could lead to idolatry. I think it sometimes does. Um, is it, wow, those gods seem to be working pretty well for them. Right? And they just won a military victory. Who are they offering sacrifices to? I want to win a military victory, right? We're, crops are bad. This God isn't working out. Who else? <laughs> who, who did we fail to placate and we can get on our side? And it's, it's not always other gods instead of the God of Israel, right? The, this is what's so devastating, especially later on, um, is that you get, we're worshiping the God of Israel and all these other gods. God is one among many instead of the God, everything else is a creature, right? That, that kind of absolute distinction gets lost. No other gods before me, commandment one, but also no other gods alongside me. 
and it corrupts God's worship. Right? They actually bring idols into the temple. And God says, okay, I'm going to destroy the temple. Right? Um, 277, why did the nations make such images? Israel's neighbors worshipped and served false gods by means of idols, believing they could manipulate these counterfeit gods for their own benefit. My Latin professor in undergrad described the Greco-Roman gods as divine slot machines. This is something of an oversimplification, but he's getting at something true, right? That there really is this kind of quid pro quo, I offer sacrifices, I perform these rites and rituals, I honor the gods, the gods look after me, we have good harvest, we don't have our crops destroyed by hail and storms, um, we don't get swept away by our enemies, we have children and continue to exist as a city, as a society, whatever. Um, we're protected from disease. Oh no, we have disease coming. We've clearly angered one of the gods. Who do we need to buy off? So I'm putting these sacrifices in to get something out. And there's a somewhat discreet sense of exchange, right? I think that that is an oversimplification, right? There's real piety in the ancient pagan world. And yet, this idea of worship, purely because worship is due, because worship is right, because God is God, and the right relationship of a creature with God is one of worship, gets lost in idolatry. Right? That it, it becomes turned back toward me in a subtle way. Is it saying too much to say that idolatry is always ultimately, at least in some sense, self-idolatry? That it's a kind of turning of worship back toward the self, even if it's in a fairly indirect way? I think. Thoughts? Reactions? Mm-hmm. And just put it so high, and then we have these false gods who we think can satisfy those wants in our heart. Right. And so by putting those false gods on high, we're putting our own wants on high. So we're really worshiping what we want to do. Just mm. to say our own will, our own desires, our own our own imagined fulfillment. Yes. Yep. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Are all images wrong? No. We're 278, sorry. <laughs> Try that again. Are all images wrong? Yeah. No. God forbade the making of idols and the worship of images, yet commanded carvings and pictures for the tabernacle depicting creation. Christians are free to make images, including images of Jesus and the saints, as long as they do not worship them or use them superstitiously. 
Oh boy. Um, this is very much a contentious point in the Reformation period and after. Uh, well, before that too, I mean, you have a couple of iconoclastic controversies in the East. So it's like using icons, no, icons are a problem. We should smash them all. Um, and then the West at the, <clears throat> excuse me, at the Reformation, including in Church of English Reformation, Anglican kinds of circles. I mean, John Knox is more of a Presbyterian, but up in Scotland, he, like he's, he's influencing the English Reformation. He, he's like, smash them all. Uh, ironically, there's now like a stained glass window of John Knox in one of these Scottish churches, which I'm pretty sure he would hate. <laughs> he'd, he'd put a rock through it, but anyway. Um, but, but here's the claim that the catechism is making, and I, I firmly agree for what it's worth. Um, if you read the description, especially of the temple, of Solomon's temple, there's all this carved work of trees, of flowers, of pomegranates. They're into pomegranates in uh, ancient temple decor. Also of cherubim. And you've actually got two carven cherubim statues over the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple. Well, that's an awful lot like a carved image of something. And not even a carved image of something that most of us see in ordinary creation, right? Of a, an angelic being, a, something that a pagan might very easily mistake for a god. Yes? Um, it may be significant that no one goes in and sees it. Uh, nevertheless, this is part of divinely prescribed temple worship, actually, is... is the sort of visual decor. Okay, that, that should tell us something. Um, but then, and I think this is a change in Jesus, the incarnation really does change the game. Right? Because we're not allowed to make a creaturely portrayal of God, but God is. If God wants to say, here is God, look, you can see his face, you can touch him, you can put your hands in his wounds after the resurrection, for goodness sake, you, you can have a meal with him. Uh, God's allowed to do that. <laughs> right? And when the word becomes flesh and dwells among us, John chapter one, we behold his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has seen God, yet the Son of God has made him known. The possibility of encountering God with the senses, seeing God with the eyes. You can paint a portrait of the man Jesus who is God. Right? You, you could make a statue of him. You could draw a sketch. You could do an abstract painting representing him. I don't know if, if that's your deal. Um, something is revealed more fully in Christ of God making himself known in human form in a way that's accessible to us in human terms. And so 
Christian images and any kind of argument for Christian use of images in the context of worship, I think has to be rooted back in the incarnation. That's where you go if you want to think about that rightly. If you're not going to the incarnation, you're probably doing it wrong or thinking about it wrongly. Um, that, that has to be the place to ground it. And uh, if you want to do some background reading on this, I highly recommend uh, St. John of Damascus on the divine images. He, he really develops this pretty powerfully. Um, he's got three treatises on the divine images. They repeat some. You can just read the first one or two, and you'll, you pretty much get the argument. Um, so, the, I mean, there's some images in this room. I don't know if you noticed. Um, this is why. Uh, but worship of those images is still wrong. They're not God, right? This is, this is a portrayal of Jesus being laid in the sepulcher here. But that is not, in fact, Jesus tacked on the wall, right? That's not Jesus hanging above the pulpit. That's not Jesus above the altar. And yet, in a sense, it is, right? I mean, you, you do this if you have a photo of someone you love on your desk, right? Or um, grandkid photos. This is my youngest. You don't say that this is a portrayal representing my youngest grandkid. No, no, no one ever said that. It would be super weird. It's like, this is my youngest grandkid. And everybody's like, oh, He's so adorable, or, oh man, he looks like he's a handful. You're like, yeah, he sure is. <laughs> right? We, we have this sense of, of closeness to the person, and we know that we know that the photo isn't the person, and yet in a way it is. That we, we have this kind of awareness of the person's presence, and, and our love for the person is, is activated when we see that image. This is a kind of natural terms case for the role that these sorts of holy images could, can play. Um, they're particularly blessed and set aside for that purpose. But, but we do this in, our, in ordinary everyday life, too, actually. Um, could you turn it into an idol? Sure, presumably. Can you use it superstitiously? Yes. Have people done so? Pretty sure they have. Um, but it doesn't have to be that way. Right? Any questions about that? This, this, is, this is probably the most contentious point in this section. So. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, using the rosary. Yeah, that, and that's a bit different. That's kind of a set of practices, prayers, right? It's, it's not an a image per se. Um, there's a great deal of concern on the Protestant side about the way that Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox are treating Mary and the saints. And is that crossing over into idolatry, the, the kind of classic ancient medieval distinction, um, you know, break out some Greek here, is between latria and dulia, 
uh, between worship and veneration. And the basic principle is only God is to be worshiped. Are you a person of the Trinity? If not, you're not a right recipient of worship. Full stop. Um, but you might be of veneration because here's the thing. Not only has God made himself known in Jesus Christ, but God reveals himself through the church. And grace is made known through human beings who become vessels of grace, right? The Virgin Mary, the apostles, the martyrs, the holy virgins, these men and women of, of God who we see God at work in them. Um, and thus, you know, St. Paul can say, follow me as I follow Christ. personal opinion. Some of the piety and prayers related to Mary and the saints seem to me to be pushing that line. Um, but quite a lot of it isn't obviously doing so, or it doesn't have to be. And I, I think a fairly robust veneration and honor for these men and women through whom Christ's power is revealed can be an appropriate part of Christian pious practice. Um, the, the prayer book is pretty restrained about it, right? So it's a, something that you can take up more or less to, that's largely up to you. Um, but, but those are the categories to think about that as well. Hmm. Ooh, question 279. Are idols always images? No. Anything can become an idol if I look to it for salvation from my sin or comfort amid my circumstances. If I place my ultimate hope in anything but God, it is an idol. If I place my ultimate hope in anything but God, it is an idol. Um, the great Presbyterian preacher Tim Keller offers the test. Ask yourself, what is the one thing that you say, if, if I lost that, I would lose everything? Or contrarywise, if I can only keep hold of this, everything will be okay, or at least tolerable, at least salvageable, or at least not all is lost, if only this person, this possibility, this opportunity, this career, this image of myself, this possession, this source of security, right? Where, where do you go for security? Where do you go for identity? If I place my ultimate hope in anything but God, it is an idol. Even if it's, there's not a carving of it on your mantelpiece. The household gods are not always portrayed in that invisible form. But this hope connection is really interesting. And the, the next question takes us there. What does the second commandment teach you about hope? It teaches me that my ultimate hope is in God alone, for he alone is God and he made me. I must not look for salvation and fulfillment in myself 
another person, my wealth or occupation or status or any created thing. Only in God will I find perfect love and fulfillment. Right? This is the consequence of this creator-creature distinction. If, if it's true that only God is worthy of worship and if it's true that our right orientation as creatures is one of worshiping God, that this is what we're made for, then necessarily our true fulfillment as creatures, our fullness is found in this relationship of worship of God. And we're going to be missing fulfillment in its truest sense if we're not in this relationship of worship of God. Right? Idolatry is self-deprivation. You're denying yourself the opportunity to live wholly into the self you are, into the kind of being that you're made to be. Because God's creatures belong to him. Um, because you're subordinating yourself to some other creature, and it, as incredible and glorious as it may be in some created beings really are, it can't sustain and support that. It can't give you that. It's not enough. Idolatry is insufficient for human fullness and flourishing. It's insufficient for our satisfaction. It's insufficient for the longings of our souls. This, this is the Christian claim. This is the claim of the Decalogue of the Ten Commandments. If you want to be whole, you can, God is the only one you can worship. But, here's the trick, not worshiping him just so that you can be whole, because then your own wholeness is the goal and not God, right? This subtle idolatry sneaking back in, human heart is an idol factory. But no, worshiping God because God is God. Because God is worthy of worship. Because God is glorious and because it's good to love God. Because God loves us. Only in God will I find perfect love and fulfillment. Question 281. How was Jesus tempted to break the first two commandments? Satan tempted Jesus to bow down and worship him, promising him an earthly kingdom without the pain of the cross. Instead, Jesus served and worshiped God faithfully and perfectly all his life and calls us to do the same. In some sense, the answer to idolatry is the cross. We create images of God and refuse to break them and break past them. God gives us a true image of himself and allows himself to be broken. But in doing that, he breaks through to us. And, and the answer to idolatry is crucifixion, right? It's, it's the idol being handed over to God to be put to death. 
it may be that there's a resurrection on the other side of that. It may be that you get it back, but not in any way that's under your control or that you can predict, right? No, nobody sees the resurrection coming. If you find in your own heart an idol or collection of them, the solution is, is to give them to God and say, here, nail this to the cross, please. And that's where new creation happens, right? And this is true even of our false images of God himself. Our, our kind of distorted or inadequate ideas about God that we, we create and build and calcify and protect and vigorously fight to defend. Uh, and then God comes along and <laughs> smashes it with a hammer. <laughs> ah! You broke God. And he's like, I am God. Oh. Hmm. Okay. I, I have this conversation sometimes in, in pastoral counseling or spiritual direction where someone's going through a really rough time and things are getting just sort of smashed up in their lives. Right? And, and it, it feels really tenuous. It feels really perilous. It's like... I. I don't know what's happening to my Christian faith. Like, it's getting shattered. Well, are you turning away from God as a response, or is it driving you to God? Because if it's driving you to God, then it may be that God is saying, I need you to know more about who I am than you know. I need you to have a fuller picture of who I am. You, you're a creature. You, of course you can't fully encompass who I am. Um, you've, you've narrowed it too much. I've got to break that image so that you can encounter me. This is very painful. It's no fun. Um, it's really good. But the results can be really beautiful. And I... I think when, when people see that, and I've, I've had these conversations where someone realized, oh, yeah, this could, this could be really transformative for me and for my relationship with God. Right now it feels terrible and terrifying. But I think I might end up a lot more of a Christian on the other side of this if God carries me through it. Right, but but because of the kind of thing is you, you have to hand yourself over to God and be like, all right, you've got to get me through this because I don't know what to hold on to anymore because you just broke it. Thanks. Right. I think I just started preaching there. Anyhow. <laughs> Question 282. How will idolatry affect you? If I worship and serve idols, I will become like them empty and alienated from God, who alone can make me whole. Oh, man. You become like what you worship. Right? The, this is the ubiquitous con conviction of the scriptures. You become like whatever you worship. Um, there's a passage, if I can find it. Yeah. Uh, Psalm 115. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, 
eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell, they have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Since the, an idol is a kind of damaging even of the creature itself, right? It's, it's just an image. It, it has a mouth, but it can't actually talk to you. It has feet, but it won't go anywhere unless you pick it up and carry it. Right? It has eyes, but they don't see anything. You can only look at it. And this kind of insensibility of the idol becomes true of the one who worships the idol, right? That you're debasing yourself in worshiping this. You're dehumanizing yourself um, in the same way that you're distorting, diminishing the actual creaturely goodness of the creature that you're trying to turn into a god. Uh, when you worship the true god, you become like what you worship. We become like Jesus by recognizing that we're, we're not him. We're not God and turning toward him. That That is actually our transformation, our divinization, uh, to, to become, as, as uh, Peter says, partakers of the divine nature. The irony of idolatry is that it's the loss of the thing that you're trying to use it to gain. We actually become like God when we fully embrace not being God and God being God instead. We become less like God when we try to turn ourselves into God. Hmm. Can we keep going with the third commandment? Oh, I want to talk about this a little bit. Okay, great. Uh, 283. What is the third commandment? The third commandment is, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. 284. Why is God's name sacred? God's name reveals who he is, his nature, his character, his power, and his purposes. All forms of God's name are holy. Yeah, well, all right, if, if we don't have an image of God, we do have a name for God. God. God has given us names by which we can call him. And Scripture has a pretty robust sense of this, that a name represents a person, right? And, and you have these key moments in the lives of people like Abraham, Jacob, where God actually gives them a different name, right? Um, Solomon also has one, actually. So the, the Lord called him Jedediah because he loved him. No, nobody ever calls him that for the rest of the story. Okay. But this like bestowal of a name or giving a name, it's connected with someone's identity. This is why it's... Naming is so central in baptism, right? There's this bestowal of new identity. And, and traditionally, Jews and, and historically Christians as well don't even pronounce the divine name, right? Because it's, it's so holy because they don't want to 
potentially violate this commandment. They, and so when, if, if you're a good Jew, and you're saying, and you're reading the Old Testament and you get to God's name, right, the Tetragrammaton, the four holy letters, um, you sub in Adonai, the Lord, right? or you refer to it, you say Hashem, the name. Everybody knows what name you mean. <laughs> um, but it, it's only pronounced by the high priest in the temple on the Day of Atonement once a year. Right? He, he speaks the name of God. Uh, but then we, we also have these other names for God, right? Uh, and and this, is, this is what's beautiful about the Ten Commandments. If you think about that scene on Mount Sinai, The people see God revealed in the cloud and the lightning and the, the voice like thunder, and they're terrified, and they're like, okay, Moses, you go. We're going to stay down here. And God says, yeah, that's a good plan. They should, they should not, they need to stay down there. Um, don't even let an animal touch the mountain lest it die, right? And yet, the gift of the commandments is God's gift of himself. Of this like intimate knowing of, I want to show you what I'm like. I want to show you how you can be in relationship with me. Um, the, the rules are about relationship. This is in the Mosaic law, right? God is showing, I want to make you a people in whose midst I can dwell so I can be with you as you are God. We're going to have to work on that. <laughs> Right, um, but but God is taking action. God is approaching and saying, "I want to dwell with you." It's it's a restoration of what gets broken in Eden. This walking with God that Adam has, that Eve has, that gets shattered when they try to make themselves gods. Um, bad news, idolatry. The whole rest of Scripture is God's project to get us back, to get humanity back for himself, to create a people with whom he can dwell, to pitch his tent among us. The word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacle, pitch his tent among us. This is what's happening at Sinai. He's literally going to give them instructions for a tent that they're going to pitch right in the very center of the camp so God can be here with them as their God. And he even gives his sacred name to them, right? To Moses on that very mountain early, and God says, who shall I say sent me? God says, tell them I am sent you. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He lets them know him by these human names, these people whose God he has been, right? I'm their God. I'll be your God. Ephraim Radner says, I, I like this, the third commandment is not about how to manipulate our speech in order to avoid moral missteps. It is about who we are before God. Right? It's, it's fundamentally relational.
And so question 285, what does it mean to take God's name in vain? Vain means empty, meaningless, and of no account. To take God's name in vain is to treat it as such. Right? Remember in the Lord's Prayer, we're taught to pray, hallowed be your name. May your name be exalted. May it be filled up with holiness. May it be honored. May it be recognized. May you be known for who you are. Taking God's name in vain is the opposite movement. Right? It's, it's draining it of meaning. Eighty-six. How can you avoid taking God's name in vain? Because I love him, I should use God's name with reverence, not carelessly or profanely. And it's going to expand out carelessly and profanely. How might you use God's name profanely? By the unholy use of God's holy name, especially through perjury, blasphemy, and attributing to God any falsehood, heresy, or evil deed, as if he had authorized or approved them. Profaning is treating holy things as common, as unholy. Um, again, this, this is kind of the opposite category of idolatry. Idolatry is taking a creature and trying to treat it as God. Profaning is, is taking God or something holy to God and, and treating it as less than that. friend of mine once said, you know, imagine that every time somebody whacked their thumb with a hammer, they shouted your mom's name in anger. He's like, but how would you feel? Uh, do, do you feel that the person you love is being honored and respected? <laughs> Probably not, right? But why not? This is, and here's the point. Because this name is being treated as though it doesn't belong to a person. It's being diminished. It's, it's being drained of meaning. And this is the real test, I think, for whether you're taking God's name in vain or not. Are you talking about a person? Can someone who hears you speaking tell that there's an actual person that you're talking about? Or is it just you know, a noise flung in the air. God's words cause things to come into being. Words matter. Uh -oh. To empty God's name is a kind of anti-creation act. We, our culture is weird. Um, in, in the way we think about, you know, what was the old sketch, the, the seven words you can't say on the radio or whatever it was, um, cussing. We, we basically have it inverted from a Christian perspective, right? If someone shouts God's name, and you, you could still almost get a G rating on that movie, Right? If you start dropping the F word, you're going to get in trouble. Frankly, from a Christian perspective, it's exactly the other way around. <laughs> I mean, the, the F word is just obscene, like, you know, but it's, but it's not blasphemous. <laughs> it's, it's certainly impolite. It, it might not be honoring creatures, but, it, but it's not an offense against God directly. 
Um, or the, all, all these sorts of words about bodily parts and functions that are, are sort of impolite that we get really freaked out about. But, but someone damns someone else, i.e. tells them to go to hell. Um, like that's actually quite serious. Uh, I, I, I think we, we need to rewire and reorient how we think about these, these things uh, as if words actually mean something, right? Um, if you think hell is a real place, which Jesus clearly does, um, if you think damnation is something that might actually happen to a person, uh, the, that there are things that are damned, right? But be a little careful about how you apply that and to what. But maybe there's an appropriate time for pronouncing curses, but don't curse what God hasn't. Fair? Also, though, and it, I mean, we get, we get caught up just in, in use of words here, um, but it goes beyond that, and I think this question rightly draws that out. <clears throat> um, perjury, blasphemy, attributing to God falsehood, heresy, or evil deed as if he authorized or approved them, right? Speaking falsely about God, communicating these false images of God is a kind of violation of the third commandment as well. Uh, Doing things in God's name that bring dishonor to him. Saying, oh, God, God blesses this. This is in God's, this is, I'm doing this as a Christian. Sort of like slapping God's name on stuff. God's like, no, nope. I don't, I don't think you asked me about that. Had you asked, I would have said, no, that's not me, right? Um, there are, godly acts to do in, in society and culture and politics, but probably be a little careful about attributing your own particular policy or project to this is God's will. It might be. Uh, don't. Probably don't run too far in asserting that. Uh, I'm trying to follow God and this is my best understanding of how I can do that. Okay, great. I've, I've prayed about and I've sought godly counsel. That's promising. Good. Um, yeah, that's, that's enough about that. Well, drat. Man, I see why Father Lee always goes over. <laughs> Um, I'm going to do question 288 anyhow. <laughs> How might you use God's name carelessly? Cursing, magic, broken vows, false piety, manipulation of others, and hypocrisy all cheapen God's name. These treat God's name as empty of the reality for which it stands. Again, are you talking about a person? Um, false or half-hearted worship, right? When we show up and we go through the motions, but we, we aren't really seeking to be fully present in worship. 
Maybe it's a kind of violation of the third command. Um, speaking about or to God without really meaning anything by it. Manipulative prayers, right? Bargaining, if I, if I can just like get the right combination of words right, then God will do what I want. God's not a divine slot machine. He's not an idol. Stop. Okay? He's God. But this, that being said, and I think this is important, in fact, we can have strong words with God. If you read the Psalms, if you read Job, if you read Jeremiah, if you read Habakkuk, if you read Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, um, this is the thing. God says, Job has spoken rightly of me, unlike you, Job's friends. I mean, you read some of Job's words, you're like, really, God, are you sure? He seems to be pushing the line here, and maybe he is. I mean, God rebukes, God sort of puts Job in his place first. But Job refuses to curse God when his wife says, curse God and die. He offers sacrifices for his children in case they had cursed God, right? Job understands the distinction here. He's very clear about this. Um, when he sounds way over the line, it's coming from this place of deep relationship. It's coming from this profound conviction that God really is a person and he wants to like have it out with God. And his, his friends don't get that. Um, but it, it seems to me biblically that this is what God wants, is this truly personal relationship. And so the test, again, is, is it moving us toward or away from God? Is this kind of speech helping us to know God more fully as the person who he is in his terms, not ours? Um, or is it diminishing or, or emptying that out in some way? I'll stop there. Yep.